But Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about doubt. And I'd like to talk to you about doubt for a personal reason. That might not be what you expect or want to hear from a preacher at the beginning of a sermon. I'll grant you that. But don't worry. It's not regarding anything too central. As a Canadian, I still think Canada is God's special country. The faith (laughs) remains strong. The truth will not be denied. No, my doubt is more specifically connected to our reading this morning from John chapter 6. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed, incredible as so many of them are, the one recorded here is among the most difficult for me to wrap my head around. How did this work? What does it suggest about Jesus, about his relationship to the physical world? How can someone who is fully human do such things? This is superhero stuff. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Frederick Dale Bruner suggests that part of the reason that this miraculous work, walking on the water, is so challenging for modern hearers is because of how obvious it is. There is no distance or hiddenness to Jesus' display of raw power here. You think to last week in the feeding of the 5,000, there would have been this ongoing, dawning realization as people ate the food of what had happened. It would be this gradual thing. You think of the water turned to wine at the wedding in Cana. That was similarly only made evident as people tasted it. Jesus' transformative blessing and prayer were hidden away. Here, the, the display seems so ostentatious. And Bruner asks, what is even the good that is being accomplished here? Many commentaries on this passage in John 6 kind of skirt over, do not dwell upon these verses here. It's just like, yeah, he walked on water, yada, yada, yada. Within the gospel itself, in comparison to the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in John 6, it's barely commented on. But what did this even look like? Like, were Jesus' feet flat on the surface of the water? What would that mean for going over waves? Were his feet like a couple inches below the surface? If you've seen like a foil board in surfing like that? I think part of my difficulty with this miracle, wrapping my head around it, is rooted in my own physical experiences. I know what it is to step onto water in a pool or a lake and plunge beneath the surface. Water is not solid for me. My body knows what it feels like to sink beneath the water in waves. In this basic sensory way, it seems incredible. Now, you might be here and think that a fixation on this particular miracle ignores much larger doubts about convictions regarding the Christian faith, the the presence of a creator, Jesus' divinity, the resurrection itself, and so on. And fair enough, we live in skeptical times. A few years ago, I was in a conversation with a, a PhD student at UT in mechanical engineering, talking about faith. This person had grown up with a Christian faith, but they were struggling with it. And they made, at one point, this interesting comment. They said, I feel like my doubts are good to have. 
That is, I think that they were both intellectually justifiable, but also in a way perhaps morally good, even noble. In a skeptical age, the the true believer is someone we look upon with suspicion very often. And that comment is only possible within this larger social framework, a certain moment with specific values where true belief regarding faith or religion is kind of suspect. And that is, in many ways, the societal moment in which we live. That is the water in which we are swimming. The sociologist Peter Berger coined the term plausibility structures. That is, at certain ages, historical moments, specific beliefs become more or less plausible depending on these often unrecognized factors. And he argued that in our modern social world, the world around us as we experience it is itself an important cause for the diminishing plausibility of religious belief. So a simple example of this would be the explanatory power of science, right? Science involves this methodological naturalism. Sorry, there's some big terms right here. But that's an approach to understanding the world that excludes any kind of non-material explanation, right? Like school just started this week. If you go to your science class this week and you submit a paper and it's like fairies did it or like invisible angels were pulling the strings in this situation, in this experiment, and that's how we got the result we got. That is an unacceptable answer, scientifically speaking. And the fact of the matter is, is science has explained a lot of our natural world. And so in that setting, a non-material being like, for example, God, seems to us less plausible in many ways. And even more than implausible, perhaps, we think of it as wishful thinking, the projection of an immature mind. There's a, a recent book titled Bulwarks of Unbelief. And it points out how in so many ways in our cultural moment, materialistic or atheistic worldviews are depicted as honest and brave. As my PhD friend said, good in this robust way. Now, I don't have the time, nor perhaps the expertise to unpack all of that to give you indisputable proof of God's existence and Jesus' divinity, though both are true. But part of why I want to begin here and talk about doubt is simply to point out the background that informs all of us and our reading of a passage like John 6, that informs all of us and our reading of the Gospel of John. This weight against belief. The technologies we use, the mastery we exert in the world, the values we hold without even recognizing them incline us so often toward a disposition of skepticism, toward suspicion about many of the claims the Bible makes. We find it hard to believe Jesus walked on water, partially because we have that experience, like I described, and partially because we have the experience of being masters of reality, and we, we do not think that there are other forces, other agencies out there. This is kind of an aside, but this is why Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about considering the lilies and the sparrows, or Psalm 46, verse 10, which says, be still and know that I am God, are so important in our, day, in our age of doubt, anxiety, alienation. They highlight for us the, the importance of practices that would remove us from those elements of our existence. 
that would form us away from an awareness of God's presence. Some people have talked or written about digital asceticism. And that may be called for in our lives, that we might grow in an awareness of God's presence. I also just want to highlight the cultural conditions that inform our positions, our disposition. The doubts we have or feel are no less the product of the world around us than the seemingly naive beliefs of previous generations. We think, oh, they didn't have all the information that we have. There's kind of a chronological snobbery. But the fact of the matter is, is that you and I are just as conditioned by the world around us, prone to being affected by these things. Quite simply, our doubts and our skepticism are worthy, too, of being interrogated, just as our convictions and beliefs are. And there are all kinds of remarkable resources to do this. Corbin, now's your moment to shine. Lift up that stack of books. I grabbed a couple of books off of my shelf. These all, in some way, deal with doubt, with what I'm talking about. And they're good books. You can put them back down. You can come check them out. I mean, you can come look at them after the service, not check them out as in a library, but you can look at them. And they're great resources. There are Christians grappling with this. And those are all from a particular, it's like your Kellers, your Leslie Newbegins, your Rebecca McLaughlin's. But one, if you're like, I'm not into books or a different tradition, a great resource is the Jude 3 Project by this woman, Lisa Fields, that is from the black church doing apologetics, exploring questions of doubt. Find it online. It is awesome. There are resources out there for you to engage these questions that we come to the text with, that we come to the Christian faith with. There is this opportunity I want to suggest to you to doubt your doubts, to interrogate and consider the ones that you bring. Now, in our reading this morning, strikingly, the disciples are terrified by the sight of Jesus on the water. Rather than this kind of wish fulfillment, this projection of their immature longings, they are scared by what they see. And that reaction, I think, to us makes a lot of sense. They're confronted here by what's been described as a power more fundamental than the forces of nature, right? Like, this is not natural. This is not supposed to happen. That is a deeply unsettling thing. It's even terrifying. Something beyond our explanatory power, something that dislodges us from the center of the universe. There's something human and identifiable about the disciples' reaction here. And beyond just the presence of this power, like, oh, that is something I cannot explain, the disciples are confronted with this power beyond their comprehension, in the words of John, approaching the boat. It's not exactly Jaws, but they're like, it is coming this way. The presence of such a power in the universe is one thing. You're like, oh my gosh, the universe is a more mysterious place than I expected. But that such a power is seeking the disciples out is not indifferent to them and their existence. It raises the stakes. It implicates them. It implicates you and I, because this is a theme of our readings today, that the living God, this power beyond the fundamental forces of nature, is seeking people out, is going to the nations, is drawing people, is after people. You may have doubts about God, but God has no such doubts about you, and he's coming for you. 
In the recent Indiana Jones movie, Indy makes this comment about faith. He says, I've seen incredible things. I've come to believe it's not so much about what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. That, my friends, is some grade A nonsense. <laughs> and I'm in like the faith business, I'm a priest. It's like the opposite problem to what my friend was saying. It's unfortunate, I love Indiana Jones, the new movie's mm, not so good. But this idea that faith, any faith, as long as it's deeply held, has value, is wrong. Like, that is bad thinking. I don't even think the writers believe it. <laughs> but the strength of one's belief does not matter more than the content of those beliefs. Some religious convictions sincerely held should be rejected. Some of them cause human beings to do crazy, dangerous, violent things. And others are glorious, good, gracious news. That a power more fundamental than the forces of nature exists is perhaps unsettling. We're answerable to a power greater than ourselves. But that this power approaches us, draws near to us, in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, as the disciples see here, is remarkable, transformative, life-giving, gracious news. Jesus identifies himself in verse 20. He assuages their fear. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And that phrase can be simply translated, it is I, like me. It's me. But the words in the original language can also be translated as I am. The same phrase that Jesus repeats throughout the gospel and that links his identity to Israel's God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 as I am. I am who I will be. And Jesus, think about this. Having just fed the 5,000, having recreated the gift of manna to Israel, now joins his followers and helps them cross the sea. We're good. If you, if you got to go, if you got to go this way, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Jesus is recreating this stuff and saying, I am the same God that met Israel in the wilderness, that liberated them from Egypt, that guided them, provided for them, that helped them. It's me. It is I, he's saying. Do you see it? The, the power more fundamental than the forces of nature, the power at the heart of the universe is not indifferent to you is not unaware of you, but is actively seeking you and I and our colleagues, our friends, our family out. That is the truth encapsulated in Jesus' statement here. Do not be afraid, I am. This power beyond all reckoning is the lowly and gentle shepherd, the one full of grace and truth, the one who continues the saving and merciful deliverance of Israel's God. And that power is unwilling to leave you be. John specifies in verse 17 that night fell on the disciples as they were trying to cross the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And darkness always carries this symbolic meaning in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the light of the world, comes to dispel the darkness under which creation and humanity grope. As he displays his glory, the darkness of sin and evil and unbelief through the gospel are overcome. 
And in verse 19, John specifies the disciples rode three or four miles. It's a weird detail, like we talked about last week. But the point seems to be that they were in the middle of the sea. At the point at which the storm fell upon them, they had no immediate avenue of rescue, no immediate opportunity to find a safe harbor. Many years ago, I had a a conversation with a friend who was confronted with the destruction of their own marriage because of a a particular betrayal. They were facing the impact of it on, on themselves and on their children, facing a life they never imagined on the cusp of middle age. And this friend commented to me, I feel like I'm in need of rescue and no one is coming. He might as well have said, it's dark and I'm drowning. For some of you, the boat is far from shore and the winds and waves are against you. You are not going to make it. The clouds of sin, the clouds of sadness are heavy upon us. And the darkness of doubt is thick. And the testimony of this story in John 6 is not merely that God exists, that a power beyond the fundamental forces of nature exists, but that in Jesus, he has and is now seeking out and saving those who are in need of rescue, who cannot get to the shore. More than just this ostentatious display of power, the story before us today is a declaration that in the storm, in the storm in which you find yourself, Jesus can, Jesus will find you. He will overcome impossible things, impossible circumstances. Walking on the waves is not humanly possible. And when you and I do not have the strength, do not have the faith, when we feel so very weak and alone, Nothing hinders the one who walks on the waves. Within the the ancient Jewish imagination, the waters of the sea, we've talked about this before, but they represented the forces of chaos, of destruction. As part of what makes Genesis 1 so amazing is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, not just restraining them, but actually bringing good creation out of their midst. And here we see the same mastery over the waters. Jesus drawing near to his disciples in their moment of need. It seems very clear that John has in the background here this reality, especially as it's expressed in a few Psalms, like Psalm 77. It says, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. When the forces of chaos, the forces arrayed against the flourishing of God's creation, saw Jesus, the psalmist declares they were afraid. And he says, your way was through the sea, though your footprints were unseen. And Psalm 107 declares that when our courage melted away, we were glad that the waters were quieted. And he brought us to our desired haven, to the end of the journey, safely brought us where we desired and longed to go. Do you find your faith flagging? Are you overwhelmed? Confused by the opposition and challenges of this life. John's testimony is that there is one who can and will deliver you, who draws near to us and can be known. Please hear this. The task is not to more faith, to tamp down your questions, but it is to look to Jesus and to hear his call. It's 
is I. Do not be afraid and receive him. Verse 21 describes how the disciples were willing to take Jesus into their boat. Willing, literally, to receive him. Much like the language of darkness, the language of receiving in the Gospel of John always means something more. It's right there in John 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And this term, receive, is clearly connected to this idea of faith or belief. Those who receive Jesus believe him, receive his testimony. They put their faith in him. And this is important. The Gospel of John does not suggest that doubt, specific doubt, is a problem, as though questions and challenges we face in understanding somehow disqualify us from the life and love of Jesus. That is not true. No, the problem consistently in the Gospel of John often coming from religious quarters, is people's refusal to receive Jesus, their continual rejection of him. The issue is not doubt and questions, but rather unbelief and hard-heartedness, a refusal. Very practically, don't ignore questions. Don't ignore your doubts, but make them a part of your prayer. Make them a part of your receiving of Jesus. One of those books, Arriving at Amen, by Leah Labresco Sargent, she describes how she has adapted this phrase from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. She's a very educated person, so it makes sense. But she adapts this phrase as a prayer of last resort, and she, it says, Oh, Lord, you must untangle this, not I. It's too hard a knot for me to untie. That is a fruitful way to bring your questions, your doubts before the Lord. New Testament scholar Sherry Brown, an expert in the Gospel of John, points out that faith in John is always dynamic, always described in terms of action. And that action, she suggests, is specifically related to how we respond to Jesus, the Word of God. Will he be received or not? Your prayerful questions and struggles to understand are one of the ways you can receive Jesus. Jesus, I do not understand. I don't see how this is possible. Help my unbelief. But there are other ways too. Part of the reason I suggested I struggle with this miracle is because of the physical experiences I've had. Nothing dramatic, just like falling into the water. There's this embodied quality that makes it difficult for me to comprehend. There's something visceral in me that's like, I don't, like, man, the water, I don't know how that works. And like we've seen daily in our modern moment, we live out unbelief shaped by the the structures of our time warring against faith in us. There is no escaping this. It's simply the reality we are in. In that kind of a situation, what might it mean to receive Jesus? I think it might mean putting flesh to our convictions, the convictions we claim. That Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is who John describes him to be, the word of God come into creation, to act out our convictions, to embody belief, to counteract the effects of these other practices, that we would grow in our capacity for faith. Each week, here at this table, what you are doing is you are receiving Jesus in this very basic, very easy way. What we are doing is a work of counterformation, 
counteracting the practices, the embodiment of unbelief that we experience in the world around us, rehearsing time and again our acceptance of Jesus, believing him, receiving his body, his grace, taking the truth into ourselves. That weekly reception is, of course, based upon this more singular receiving of Jesus. The reception marked by our baptism, our confession of faith. In our baptismal vows, we give words to our receiving of Jesus as Savior, our allegiance to him as Lord. If you haven't done that, lay hold of the promises that are yours in Christ. One other thing that came to mind this morning not on my own, but in the action of singing, in the action of singing together songs of truth, songs of adoration, we are practicing, rehearsing our receiving of Jesus. Psalm 100 says, come before his presence with a song. Be assured then that the Lord is God. There's something that happens when we sing together, we embody the truth of our beliefs and we are changed, equipped to believe. David Taylor has written an article in Christianity Today called Hymns and Neurons, like H-Y-M-N-S. Hymns and Neurons about physiologically what is going on when we sing together. God made it so. But beyond these sacramental moments of reception in our lives, we receive Jesus when we take him at his word, when we act in prayer, in service, in generosity, in devotion, in worship, in our lives, upon the truth of who he is, is the word of God, our deliverer, the great I am. Isaiah 56, we heard it this morning, implores the people of God in the doing of justice. That too is an embodiment of our conviction, a way of receiving Jesus. Such things do not remove all doubt from our minds. But what receiving Jesus in these ways does is shape and form us in the convictions of the faith we've received. We put into practice the convictions we confess, and in those practices, we become believers. We receive Jesus. And in turn, as John says in chapter 1, verse 16, we receive grace upon grace. Just in closing, T.S. Eliot famously wrote in his poem, Little Gidding, we shall not cease from exploration, shall not cease from asking questions, from grappling to understand. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In John 6, the disciples are returning to the western side of the Sea of Galilee returning to where they started. And some readers of our text have detected a second, more subtle miracle. You may have noticed it there. In verse 21, it appears to describe how the disciples immediately, upon taking Jesus into their boat, arrive at their destination. Some see this moment, there's with Jesus this kind of teleportation that takes place. They arrive suddenly where they've longed to go. It happens to Philip in the book of Acts, so who knows? On one level, this line simply suggests that the ways that, this, the new, the ways that new and seemingly impossible things are made possible with Jesus, the word of God, God from God. But I think there might be deeper significance for us in our era of doubt and our challenges to believe. 
There is, I think, a suggestion here that with Jesus, the disciples have arrived. They have got to where they needed to to go. In receiving him, by believing in him, their journey is in some way complete. Yes, the fullness of Jesus' victory and kingdom is something that we and they long after. There is a sense, however, that with Jesus believing in him, we have arrived at the end of our journey. Still, yes, in a broken, uncertain, and fallen world, longing for the day when faith will become sight, when we will see him face to face. But here and now, we enter into that broken world, and we see it again for the first time in his light, in the light of the world, the power beyond the fundamental forces of nature, Savior, Redeemer, and Friend the one who walks upon the waves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Before we move to the creed, let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for these words from John chapter six. We thank you that the same spirit inspiring the writing of these words is present to us now. And Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would build up faith in us, that you would increase our faith Increase our capacity to lay hold of the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Dispel the darkness and clouds that obscure the full revealing of who you are to our hearts and minds. Help our unbelief, we pray. Strengthen us that we might walk in full obedience, full faith in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.